second expedition of Moses, Deuteronomy is really three, main, three sermons of Moses on the plains of Moab right before the Israelites cross over the Jordan River to go and take the land that God had promised to Abraham, Jacob, and Isaac hundreds of years before. We're watching God begin to fulfill his covenant, to give his people a land, to make the nation of Israel um, a nation and give them the land. Um, and, uh, and so, <clears throat> like we said last week, the first expedition is really, really a, a quick historical overview of what the Lord has done uh, for them up to this point. Um, it's a reminder of their father's rejection of him, not going into the land, and how uh, they were cursed by the Lord and all died in the wilderness. And now the second generation, the, the sons and daughters of that first generation, are the ones that will actually do the work of faithfully obeying the Lord, crossing over, and taking the land. And he reminds them of, of the things that God's already done. In chapters 2 and 3, we saw how the Lord had faithfully delivered them from the two Amorite kings on the east side of the Jordan. And God is basically just saying, you remain faithful, you submit, you follow me, I will take care of you. And again, that's the direct application for us. It's the same thing. We trust what the Lord says. We obey his word. We submit to everything that he has given to us in his word. He will always faithfully provide for us and always take care of us. So then we got to chapter 5, which is the beginning of the second exposition. Um, and, and this exposition is uh, really, um, we called it what God expects. It's the uh, exposition of the law. From chapter 5 to chapter 26, it's like one long sermon. And Moses is going to, it's really he's training up this generation to understand what it was that God gave to them at Mount Sinai. What God has said, what God expects. And this is a renewal of the Mosaic Covenant. Um, it's a renewal that's supposed to happen every seven years at the Feast of Booths, I believe. Anybody, is that correct? Anybody remember? Is it the Booths? Yeah. All right. We got a confirmation up here. <laughs> One of the feasts that the Israelites were uh, to do, that they, they should renew this covenant with each subsequent generation uh, to remind them of who they are, what God has done, and what the expectation was, or what the calling is for the nation of Israel. Um, and, you know, if you read the beginning with Judges, right after they take the land in Joshua, all the way through the history of Israel, um, they, they didn't faithfully do this, you know, and you just watch Israel fall apart into idolatry and everything else. Um, every once in a while, under Josiah, there was a renewal, you know. Um, we see uh, Joshua does this at Mount uh, uh, Ebal and Gerizim after they take the land. Um, but it's sad uh, that, that, that this didn't happen uh, as it should have happened. Uh, but again, the application for us is we see what Israel did and do not do what they did. Does that make sense? That's the warning of us all the time, for us all the time as the church uh, in the New Testament is these things were written for us so that we can be warned. These things are written for us so that we examine our own heart. Um, actually, what Shane just preached on is really what you do. You take the law and you make this false religion out of it that actually doubly damns those who submit to this religion. I mean, what we just heard, those warnings in there are what happens when you misuse God's word and you build something out of this law that wasn't what he intended to begin with. And so we're going to talk about that today, the, the foundation. We talked about it last week, but I'm, I'll remind you of that. Um, and when we read the Old Covenant, when we read the law, when we read the Ten Commandments, all of these things are profitable for us. All of these things are God's revelation to mankind. Um, but we want to make sure in, in understanding them and in reading them, in uh, expounding them, that we are not creating something out of them that is not what God intended. And we end up where we just left off in the first sermon that you heard today from Shane. Um, and I think the foundation that's so important when we look at this is what Christ says later that, that um, the, the heart behind all of this is a love of the Lord and of others. That is 
foundationally what all of these things are about. So that's what we're going to look at today. Uh, this is, we're calling it the exposition of the Decalogue. Um, the Decalogue just means ten words. It's the Ten Commandments. So this is, this is uh, talking about what the ten, ten Commandments are, why they were given to Israel, and what that means for us. And so last week we talked about the, the very beginning, the first five verses of Deuteronomy 5, or this exhortation to all of Israel. Uh, he's called all of Israel there at the plains of Moab. He's telling them what God did at Sinai. And then, then he's going to begin to, like I said, from this point forward, talk about the law and what the law means. And so last week we read these first five verses. And like I said, he's just explaining the fact that God made a covenant with them at Horeb or Sinai when God showed up in fire and darkness to give them God's word. He spoke to them face to face. doesn't mean they necessarily saw the, the radiance of all of God's glory. It just means that God spoke to them uh, as, as, as friends, like he did with Moses and everything else. And they are blessed to be a nation made by God for God's purposes. And God has directly communicated with them exactly what his will, intent, and purposes are and uh, who he is and, and their way to worship him and follow him. And so that's what's important about this law. And it's the same thing for us. Again, we're not Israel. We're not in this covenant with God at Horeb. But these things are still God's revelation to mankind of who he is, what he has done. It reveals his character. It reveals his, his love for his people. It reveals to us many things about the Lord that we want to glean from all of this. And like we said last week, and this is where we're going to begin this week, um, in uh, Deuteronomy 6, he says this, and Jesus is going to repeat this later, but the purpose or the heart of or the foundation of or what all of this law is all about is how to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your might. That's the point. And the first four commandments are all about that, how to love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And the last six commandments are the other part of it that Jesus talks about, the second commandment that's that's that follows this is that you shall love your neighbor as yourself jesus says on these two commandments depend the whole law and all the prophets and so that's really what i'm going to try to just found everything on today as we expound the law and what the law means rather than just be like here's the ten commandments don't do these things and do this thing what we're looking at is how do these things point us towards a love of god and a love of one another because that's the purpose Again, they can be misused to become some sort of legalistic system to be right with God. And that's the exact opposite of what they were meant for. In fact, they were meant to show the Israelites you can't do this. And you're dependent on God for all of this. And it's only by His grace and His mercy that you're even here. And you need the ultimate Savior, the ultimate sacrifice, the ultimate high priest, which we know is Jesus Christ. I mean, that's what Hebrews is all about. is pointing back to this law and going, only Christ, only Christ. Only Christ. This system that the Jews set up didn't work. But God didn't set them up with a system that doesn't work. God set them up with his truth so they could see their need for him, their dependence on him, and, and they could see how they are to love him. Does that make sense? That's what we want to get out of this. So that's what, how I'm going to go about it. Um, but again, in, even in John 14 and 15, Jesus says that it's, it's obedience to his commands that shows, it proves our love for him. Uh, we don't do these things so that we're proving to God we love him. It's God loves us. He saves us. He fills us with his spirit. And then not only are we obligated, but we desire to, at that point, submit to everything he says. We want him to retrain our mind. We want to be renewed in our mind, in our heart, that we can love him. And so that's why these words are so important to us. Uh, and again, in First John 5, this is the love of God that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. So again, we're not looking at the Ten Commandments as if 
it is a law binding to us. We are not Israel. We did not enter into this covenant agreement with God at Sinai, and it wasn't our forefathers that we inherit this from. We're the church. It's a whole new thing, and Christ has fulfilled the law. And at the same time, the things he's communicated in the Old Testament are still relevant, purposeful, and, and, and tell us a lot about God and who he is. And you're going to see in the New Testament, all of these things are reiterated in some way. So, again, I'm just saying that to say sometimes it gets messy because people are like, well, we don't obey the ceremonial part of the law, and you don't obey the, the, the civil part of the law, but the moral part of the law you still obey. And I, I just think a better way to think about it is we're not part of this. <laughs> That's a covenant God made with Israel. And at the same time, there's stuff woven out throughout the moral, ceremonial, and civil law that, that tell us a lot about God's expectations, who he is. And in fact, the moral part, the Ten Commandments, everything but the Sabbath is repeated in the New Testament as direct commands. And even Jesus gets behind it and goes, it's the heart of it. It's not even just don't kill somebody, but the heart of that. Well, I'm getting ahead of myself. We'll talk about it right now. All right. But here's how I, we're going to kind of look at this. Uh, the, the whole thing founded on love the Lord your God. And love your neighbor as yourself. And the first four commandments is that, that vertical law of love. How to love God. And, and then, like I said, the last six is how to love one another. It's just a good way to frame it up um, in, in, your, in your mind. And so, like we said, Jesus already says in Matthew twenty two thirty six 36, uh, that uh, the greatest commandment is love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind. And the, the second um, uh, commandment like it is that you shall love your neighbor as yourself on these two commandments to depend the whole law and the prophets. So here's what we're going to do. If you look in your Bible, starting in verse really six, uh, chapter five, verse six, we get into the, the 10 commandments. So we're going to get from six to 21 today. Look at the 10 commandments and look at what is behind these commandments and what the new Testament tells us. And so the first commandment that we look at comes in verses six through seven, where he says, I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, you shall have no other gods before me. Now, this is like word for word, exactly what is written in Exodus 20, 1 through 3. I'm going to, except for all but one of them, one of them is just so long, I'll only do the Deuteronomy up here, but I'm going to show you in Deuteronomy and in Exodus. Most of these are just word for word. This is what he said at Sinai. Moses is directly saying the same thing to him here on the plains of Moab. But this is the first commandment in both places. And it helps you to see where the Ten Commandments are in your Bible. Exodus 20 and, uh, and Deuteronomy 5 uh, is where the Ten Commandments are found. But the first thing we see here... Oh, and then this is what uh, I'm also doing. You know, we, we, all, we know that the first commandment is that there should be no other gods before me. But I also want to then, like, let's look at this. Then how do, you, how do you restate that commandment positively in, in love? Does that make sense? So... Uh, the negative is there cannot be any other God associated with you. God needs to be the only one in your life, right? And so the way I would say that is this is about loving the Lord in absolute faithfulness, complete faithfulness uh, to the Lord. The first thing God does here in this commandment is reveal his proper name. And this is important for us. So again, unless you have the LSB Bible, and I don't know if there's any other English translations that, that translate the name Yahweh in these places. But this, this name, Yahweh, is the name that God used to reveal himself to the people of Israel. Um, it's used 6,828 times in the Old Testament, according to, to Logos. Uh, I didn't look up all 6,000 uh, usages, but I just saw the number, and I was like, I'm going to trust them. <laughs> but, uh, but obviously, God reveals himself as Yahweh 
over and over and over and over and over and over and over to Israel. And he has made a special relationship with Israel. And he's basically saying here, when it says Lord, and I know mine's not capitalized up here, but in the NASB, it'll capitalize Lord. I don't know if it does that. And I, I, I don't know if the ESV does that or different English translations. But every time it does, that should be an indicator to you. That is the proper name of God. That is Yahweh. And so he's saying, I am Yahweh, your God, Israel. I am the one who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. So he's not just God. He is Yahweh. That is who he is. And he has revealed that to Israel. And they are his special people. And he is their only God. That's what he's basically saying here. If you look at Exodus 6, 2 through 8, and actually use the the Legacy Standard Bible for some of these so you could see it. Uh, but it says uh, in Exodus 6, as this, this is going back to uh, as he's bringing them out of Egypt and he's talking to Moses. This is before they come out of Egypt. He's telling Moses to go in and tell him who he is. And God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am Yahweh. And I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as God Almighty, but my name Yahweh, I was not known to them. And I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they sojourned. So this is Abrahamic covenant stuff. Furthermore, I have heard the groanings of the sons of Israel because the Egyptians are holding them in slavery. And I have remembered my covenant, the Abrahamic covenant that I swore to their forefathers. He says, say, therefore, to the sons of Israel, I am Yahweh and I will bring you. Uh, out from under the hard labors of the Egyptians, I will deliver you from their slavery. I will also redeem you with an outstretched arm and a great and great judgments. And then I will take you from my people and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am Yahweh, your God, who brought you out from under the hard labors of the Egyptians. And I will bring you into the land, which I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, and I will give it to you for possession. I am Yahweh. So again, it's just very explicit He's told him exactly what he's doing. This is something I swore to Abraham a long time ago. This is just 400 years later. It's the fulfillment of it. I'm doing this. I'm I'm making you a nation. I will be your God. You will be my people. I'm going to put you in the land, which is my land that I swore to Abraham. I am Yahweh. He is their God. He He is making a break not only from their subjection to Egyptian slavery, but to their their allegiance with any other gods. There is no other God. He's the only God. And he is clearly revealing to him that he is the only one and he must be the only one. And that's the relationship that they have together. Does that make sense? And there are very direct implications there for us, even though we are not Israel. But he is Yahweh. He is faithful to deliver them from the slavery of Egypt. And they are now obligated to be faithful to him. There can be no other gods. There can be nothing else before Yahweh. And when it says no God before him too, it doesn't just mean that God needs to be first. It's not like he's first and there can't be any other God more important, but you can have plenty of other gods behind you. Does that make sense? It's like he's the only one. It's talking about absolute faithfulness to him and to him alone. In fact, when it says there can be no other gods before me, it means in the presence of or in the face of me. It's saying that there is no other God and there can be no other God. Um, Again, it's, it's the same thing that the Lord calls us to when we are to deny ourselves, take up our cross and follow him and him alone, it must only be him. We cannot have other gods. So he's basically saying there can be no other gods at all present at any point ever. There is no, there's, I I don't share my glory and it's not okay to have other gods. This is why it's so important in Joshua 24. And I I think we've talked about this in here before, after they take the land and Joshua is about to die and he's talking to 
this generation. And he tells them, uh, I don't think I put it up here, but he tells them in Joshua 24, 19 through 20, because it's, it's a strange, if you just read it and you don't, if you don't think about what's being said and you don't think about what God has already said, it sounds like Israel's being faithful. You know, God, Joshua's telling them, you've got to obey the Lord. And they're like, we're totally going to do that. And Joshua's like, you can't do that. If you have these other gods, we're like, no, 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 we're faithful to him. And Joshua says, put away your idols. And they're like, we're going to follow the Lord. And it looks, if you just look at the words, you're like, oh, it looks like a testimony of faithfulness to the Lord. But if you look at the actions and you look at what Joshua is actually saying, it's a rebuke. And he's telling them, God's going to destroy you. And that's what in Joshua 24, 19 through 20, Joshua said to the people, you will not be able to serve Yahweh for he is a holy God. He is a jealous God and he will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. I mean, think about that. When you hear about the Lord, uh, you hear about Christ, you hear about God in the Bible, God is the one that forgives sins, right? I mean, that's the thing we know about him. He does forgive sins. He does help us in our time of need. And Joshua's telling him he won't forgive your sins and you can't follow him. He goes on to say, if you forsake Yahweh and you serve foreign gods, he will turn and do you harm and consume you after he's done good to you. In other words, it goes back to this first commandment, this principle. There can be no other God. No other gods. It's 100% faithfulness and allegiance to Yahweh and Yahweh alone. And if we try to add other things to that, then, then he, he will be against us because he is a jealous God and he is a holy God and he is the only God. Again, we see this reiterated many times in the Old Testament and in the New Testament that the eyes of Yahweh move to and fro throughout the earth that he may strongly support those whose heart is wholly devoted to him. That's what this is all about. It's wholehearted Submission, obedience, devotion to Yahweh and Yahweh alone. That's the first commandment. Deuteronomy 6.5, again, you shall love Yahweh your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your might. Jesus in the New Testament repeating the same thing. This is always God's desire, and this is what God demands of us. Um, Peter Craigie in his commentary said, the relationship to one God must dominate every sphere of life. Whether the life of action or thought or emotion there can be no area of life in which a person or a thing comes before the commitment to the one God. Indeed, anything that relegates the relationship with God to second place functions, in effect, as another God. So what he's telling Israel here on the plains of Moab, there can be nothing else, no one else, no other God. Nothing, nothing can share your allegiance with me. And like I said, that has direct implications and applications on us, and the New Testament reiterates that. It's Christ and Christ alone. If there's anything else that you try to share that devotion with, well, that thing must go. Um, and so the first commandment is that we must uh, love the Lord in absolute faithfulness, absolute allegiance, absolute loyalty to him. And like I said, that was the call to Israel. And that is the same thing that God desires for us, his children uh, in the church of Jesus Christ. The second commandment, is that you, uh, you shall not make for yourself an idol. And so I just, in the negative, no representations of God. And in the positive, I'm calling this love the Lord in reverence. You're loving the Lord in reverence. In Deuteronomy 5, 8 through 10, actually maybe this is the one that I only put the first one up there. He says, you shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above 
or on the earth beneath, or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them. Uh, For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the third and fourth generations to those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands to those who love me and keep my commandments. Actually, I do... I did put Exodus up here. And in Exodus 24 through 6, it says the same thing. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven. I think it's the exact same words. We're not read it again. The exact same thing uh, with a warning and a promise attached to the very end of it. And so the idea here is, it's plain and simple. There can be no idols, nothing, uh, no images to represent God. Um, in Leviticus 26.1, he says, You shall not make for yourself idols. Uh, nor shall you set up for yourselves a graven image or a sacred pillar, nor shall you place uh, a carved stone in your land to bow down to it, for I am Yahweh your God. Uh, and then again, Isaiah 42, 8. I am Yahweh, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another, nor my praise to graven images. So, again, it it's, goes right along with the first one, that God has absolute loyalty And the other thing we want to see here is there is nothing that can represent God. No stone, no carved image, no picture, no nothing that can represent God. That's what he's telling Israel. Now, again, I think, think of the New Testament implications. Jesus Christ is the image of the invisible God. He is the perfect manifestation of God's character and glory. Christ is the image. Does that make sense? And so we do have... An image, we do have a manifestation of Yahweh God. It is Christ. Christ is God. Christ is that representation. Christ is the one we can, and that's how even Christ says, you know, you've always been told to love, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, strength, love your neighbors yourself. Christ says, you should love others the way that I have loved you. He becomes the physical human representation of God's love, and we are to imitate Him. Does that make sense? So, there is a nuanced difference between the church and Israel in that sense. They did not have the physical manifestation of the image of God, Jesus Christ, given to them. We do. Um, but what he's saying here is there can be nothing to represent him. He has revealed himself through word. He's revealed himself through language. He's described himself in that way. And that's the way he is to be known. Um, and and there's, no, there's nothing to be made to represent him that we bow down to some image, some carved thing that's what he's telling israel all forms of uh, uh any imagery of him would be inadequate to represent who he is and so he's saying none any image would impose limitations of him or misrepresent him the only way he could be represented is through the word that he's given to them does that make sense and so that's what he's basically telling them make no images of me nothing on earth nothing in heaven nothing in the water nothing no human image nothing um the and uh and he says um, and, and again, he's given him his word to reveal who he is. Language is a means of imagery, uh, and it's necessary to impart to humankind who God is and what God expects, how to worship him, uh, uh, all the things that he's revealed to him, uh, to them. Uh, but he is keeping them free from any human attempts to impose limitations on the conception of who Yahweh God is. And so basically saying, you worship me. I'm entering this covenant relationship with you. I've revealed to you who I am. I've revealed to you my expectations. I've revealed to you how to run your nation, how to worship me, what you're morally, who you should be. You worship me and me alone. And again, I think this also uh, has uh, implications on the personal relationship that we have with God. Even in the new covenant now, God 
enters into this relationship with us through the new covenant where he puts his spirit within us that we know him. He knows us. He's in us and we're in him and we are eternally bonded to him and even refers to as a marriage covenant. And so there's an intimacy to this relationship with God that that any sort of image, idol, graven, you know, carved thing, it would it wouldn't be uh, what God intends it to be. And there's a warning and a promise to this. There's generational effects to idolatry, and that's what he's trying to tell them. They need to teach their grandchildren and their children. And then again, this is implied, this is stated many times in the Old Testament and the New Testament, that we are to train up our children in everything that he said, that we are to um, uh, teach them diligently all the words that he has said, whether we lie down, rise up, all that stuff in the, in the Old Testament, we're to discipline and instruct them in the Lord in the New Testament. Um, and for anyone that introduces idolatry, anything less than God, and again, it goes to what Shane just talked about in there. You have you have taken the things of God and made it something that it's not. There are generational effects of that on our family. He says, for those who hate me, it means those who scorn me or become my enemies and do not worship me and worship me alone. He's saying that, that they will see the, the, um, the effects of that and his judgment of that on multiple generations. And we understand that. Who you are at home and what you train your children in uh, has effects on them, right? If, you're, if you yourself are an example of submission, obedience, and love of Christ, if they see that in your life, of course they can reject God. But you are a testimony both in your faithfulness and in your words to point them to the one. However... If we in our lives have idols, our children see that. And if we're introducing idolatry or other loves or even living in hypocrisy in the home, then, then there will be generational effects because of our unfaithfulness or because of our idolatry. And, and there, there's a warning that comes to that here in Scripture. And so it's a very, very big warning. There can be no idols. There can be um, uh, no images of him. Um, and, uh, and he says, but the, for those who follow him, uh, that he shows his loving kindness. It means his covenant keeping love and faithfulness to all those who follow him. So always remember that here's the application of the old Testament covenant with Israel to us, the church, when we introduce things into our family, idolatries and things like that, it doesn't just affect us. It's not just your sin to bear or your sin struggle. These things, uh, can plague our heritage and, uh, our hypocrisy can be one of the reasons our children uh, do not trust the Lord. Now, again, they're accountable for themselves. They stand before the Lord on their own. But the last thing we want to do is introduce something into their life that becomes a hindrance between them and God. Does that make sense? And so, uh, again, I think that's a, a big warning. And it's, it's kind of like what he was saying. Again, this, what, what Shane was saying in Matthew 20 through 15 about there being, um, you know, making, uh, you go out and make proselytes and you make them twice the son of hell. Uh, again, we can do that in our own families. If we are training up our children in hypocrisy uh, and we have disdain for the Lord and we see that in our lack of love for him, our lack of submission to him, well, then we're going to train our children in that same manner and means. That's the last thing we want to do. So again, I'm just, like I said, trying to make application to this and remind us there can be no other gods. It's Christ and Christ alone. Our desire is to imitate the image that he's given us, which is Jesus Christ himself. And we're striving to submit to Christ in love, to, to, to follow him in love, and for, him, for our children to see our allegiance, our devotion, and the love that he has poured out uh, in our hearts uh, through the way that we live. The next.
is the third commandment, which I'm calling this one, no hypocrisy, or on the positive, you love the Lord in holiness. He says in Deuteronomy 5.11, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not leave him unpunished who takes his name in vain. This is a big one. Now, again, growing up, I always just heard this is where you don't use God's name as a curse word. That would definitely be a part of this, but that is not the heart of this. And, and if that's what you think this is, then that becomes an easy one. It's just like, don't use these, these little magical words, and then you're not using his name in vain. But if you look at what it means to take the Lord's name in vain or in emptiness, this is a huge biblical concept that runs throughout the whole scripture. And it's exactly what changes preached on there. There can be no hypocrisy in your life. That's what God is getting at with Israel here. It wasn't just, hey, here's a cuss word, don't use it. This is much, much bigger than that. Um, God's name throughout Scripture is associated with His character, with His nature, with His being, with His glory, with His holiness. When God talks about His name, He's always talking about who He is. And His name cannot be tarnished or, or, or blasphemed by associating the holiness and the greatness of God with something that is not that. Does that make sense? And so his name is always exalted. His name is always sanctified. His name is glorified. Um, I just went through the Old Testament to see all the usages of his name. And I mean, there's so many things associated with his name. His people are associated with his name. His house, his nation are called by his name. Uh, He is always angry when his name is blasphemed. He's always angry when false prophets take his name to say things that are not his word or convey him in a way that is not represent, uh, doesn't represent him rightly. Or when people swear falsely by his name and say things that aren't true, both the things in this world or things about him. And so we cannot misassociate or align his name with anything that is less than his name. Does that make sense? And that's what he's saying here. When you take his name in vain, the vanity, it just means you take it in emptiness or in unworthiness or in lies or in nothingness. That's the way that word is used throughout the Old Testament. And so when you take God's name in vain, it's blasphemy against God because you're associating God with something that he has nothing to do with. Or you're saying God is like this when that is not who he is. Or you're saying he said something when he has not said that. And that's always why he... Um, has strong words against false prophets or false religion, like we said in here in Matthew 23. Uh, we cannot take his name in vain. Isaiah 48, 11, he says this. He says, for my own sake, for my own sake, I will act. For how can my name be profaned? And my glory, I will not give to another. Again, this is the heart of what is behind taking his name in vain. He will not be profaned. And even when we are unfaithful to him or Israel rejects him or they take his name in vain, his name must still, he will still receive glory by acting on the curses that he told them would happen if they do those things. And it's the same thing for us. There's many warnings in the New Testament about the deceitfulness of sin and playing with sin. And, and you, you cannot think that you can walk in hidden sin, hypocrisy, or whatever, and you're going to come away scot-free like you figured it out and you're the only one that's been able to, to, you know, to pave this path before you. God's glory will not be uh, uh, misrepresented, and he will do exactly what he said he will do. Taking his name in vain is the same idea of hypocrisy, false teaching, false belief. And again, the New Testament is full of stuff 
that warns us, in the same way, do not take his name in vain. Matthew seven fifteen through 20, beware of false prophets. Inwardly, they're ravenous wolves. You'll know them by their fruits. So they take God's name. They're out there saying that they are prophets of God, preachers of God, leaders for God. And he's saying inside, they are, they are, they are just out to devour. And he's saying that they're taking his name in vain. And he's telling you, be warned, do not follow them. Uh, Matthew seven twenty one. Now, this is a warning to the, those who believe in vain. He says, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, on that day. But he says, I do not know you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. They took his name in vain. They said they were Christians, but they were practicing in their life lawlessness, sinfulness, not submitting to him. And even though on the outside they look like believers, on the outside they're taking his name. Inwardly, they did not uh, submit to him and they did not belong to him. 1 John 1 and 2, all kinds of warnings. I mean, that's the whole point of 1 John 1 and 2, is do not take his name in vain. He says, if we say with our lips, we have fellowship with God, we have fellowship with him, we're one with him, or we're part of the church, but he says we walk in darkness, we live habitually in sinfulness, in secrecy, in deceit, whatever it may be, just darkness, evil. He says, we lie, we're liars. What we say is not what we are. We don't practice the truth. We're deceiving ourselves. We're taking his name in vain. We are not truly his. Or if you say, no, I am his, then you're making God to be a liar. You're saying, even though he says my people look like this, I am unique. I am different. I can both be his and I can continue to walk in my sinfulness and I'm fine. And he's saying, well, now you're calling God a liar because God says you cannot take his name in emptiness, in hollowness, in unworthiness, in worthlessness. Same thing in First John 2. He says, we know. He's, he said, if I say I've come to know him, but you don't keep his commands, you are a liar. Again, I know we have concepts in our Christian culture of carnal Christians and Christians who can believe in God, but they can live in ways that don't submit to him. And the, the bottom line is they are liars and or, I mean, they can be self-deceived or they're calling God a liar. You can't have, but you cannot take God's name in vain. Are you going to sin? Absolutely. But Christians confess their sins. We repent of our sins. We get up, we run to God. We don't hide it. We don't try to pretend we're something we're not. And we don't go around taking God's name as we're walking in darkness and sinfulness and evil. We're fighting that stuff. Does that make sense? And so, again, coming back to the commandment, uh, you must not take the Lord's name in vain. Don't look at this and just be like, well, I've never said his name in a cuss word, so I'm, sweet. I'm good on that one. You know, that's not what it's talking about. It's talking about, again, goes back to the other two, absolute allegiance, absolute dependence, absolute holiness in our life. And again, the New Testament is just replete with this, this concept. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling which you've been called. You say you're a Christian. Well, then walk equal or balanced to what you say that you are. That would be not taking his name in vain. Ephesians 5, 1 through 2, be imitators of God, walk in love as Christ loved you. Again, that would be a lack of hypocrisy. That would be a, a, a life of, of holiness and a life of submission, obedience to him. And again, same thing in 1 Peter 1, 14 through 16. So all that being said, and, and would that include not associating his name with something vile in your language? Yes, that would definitely be a part of it. That's only a piece. And so don't rip out the, the meat of what this commandment means just by thinking it means don't say a bad word. The fourth commandment, um, and this one is the only commandment here. Well, this is the Sabbath. This is observe the Sabbath, keep it holy. And I'm calling this love the Lord in worship. And this is one that it's almost like the, the gateway to the, the next, the love one another's. This is you're loving the Lord in, in worshiping him, but you're also loving others 
uh, by granting them rest. And, uh, and so this is one of the, um, I guess, just two commandments that's actually in the positive, or if you could say it this way, it's, um, it's, it's not a do not do this or let there be no whatever. Um, he says, observe the Sabbath day, keep it holy as uh, the Lord commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do your work. The seventh is a Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall not do any work, uh, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your ox or your donkey. I mean, it's like, <laughs> can, I, can I name everything here? Or your cattle or your sojourner who stays with you. And here's the point. Here's the purpose statement. So that your male servant, your female servant may rest as well as you. You shall remember that you were a slave in, e- in the land of Egypt. Your Lord, uh, the Lord, your God brought you out of there by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord, your God has commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. Now, this is one that's a little different if you read in Exodus. In Exodus, it starts out the same. Remember the Sabbath. Um, but it, it, it equates it, instead of their deliverance from Egypt, it goes back to creation and says, uh, For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that's in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy, which is what it actually says uh, in Genesis. Um, in Genesis 2, verse 3, it says, God blessed the seventh day. He sanctified it because he rested from all his work, uh, which he had created uh, in making it on that day. So God has declared this a day of rest. Uh, it's a reminder of his completion of creation. Uh, it's a foreshadowing of the rest that we will have in Christ eternally when he returns or once we make it to heaven, if you want to say it that way. Um, and, uh, and that's what the, the, the heart of the Sabbath. It's about rest and it's about worship. It's about both loving the Lord and loving one another. Um, that's why, uh, I didn't put it up here, but that's why Jesus, you know, when the Pharisees, I mean, that was their big thing, right? They've taken the Sabbath day and they made it a troublesome day. They made the Sabbath day into a burden for God's people with all of these crazy rules and regulations that they had taken the actual law that we're expounding on right now and turned it into this thing that it wasn't. And the Sabbath became uh, one of the hardest days of the week for everyone. And, you know, you can, I read a lot about the Sabbath this week and it was like the crazy laws that the Jews have of like, you can walk 12 steps in this direction. You can pick this thing up, but if you drop it, you can't pick it back up. Or if you start a fire on that day, that's against the law. But if you start the fire the day before, it's okay to have, you know, it's just, there was all these crazy things that they had, uh, 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 made this into. And that's not what, um, God had wanted to, to be. And so when Jesus shows up, they're picking the heads of grains in Matthew 12 and, the Pharisees rebuke him, and, and Jesus says, if you had even known what it means, I desire compassion, not sacrifice, you wouldn't have condemned the innocent. So he's declaring himself and his disciples innocent. They're not breaking God's law. They're just breaking the Jewish tradition that they've made out of God's law, which is backwards. And he's saying the, whole, the purpose of the Sabbath it was compassion from the Lord for rest, for worship. In fact, the greatest thing that you could do on the Sabbath is love other people. And that might take work. But that's part of what it was all about to begin with. Um, And he says, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. This is something God blessed mankind with. It wasn't supposed to be a burden for mankind. Um, But the the difference between us just looking at a day of rest... I mean, I I, I look at Sunday. We're we're not Sabbatarians. We don't believe... And by the way, this is the one thing in the New Testament that God never calls the church to obey the Sabbath. Like there's no, and, and, and if you look at it this way too, let me throw this up there real quick to help explain what I'm trying to get at here. Next is 31. The Jews or the, the Israel, if they did not observe the Sabbath and keep this law, well, the death penalty was attached to it. This is a big deal for the Israelites. He says, Yahweh spoke to Moses. He says, 
uh, for you shall speak to the sons of Israel, saying, You shall surely keep my Sabbaths, for this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations. So the sign of the Mosaic Covenant is the Sabbath. Does that make sense? This is, this, is, this is part of like Israel, what makes them unique and different and shows them that they are God's people. He says uh, that you may know that I am Yahweh who makes you holy. Therefore, you shall keep the Sabbath, for it is holy to you. Everyone who profanes it shall surely be put to death. So again, if you try to obey the Sabbath, Old Testament-wise, well, it comes with a very big warning. And again, this is not where we go as the church. Whoever does any work on it, that person shall be cut off from his people. Six days work may have been done. Seventh day, there should be a Sabbath, complete rest, holy to Yahweh. That's the, that's the heart of it right there. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath shall surely be put to death. So again, this is a sign of the Mosaic covenant. This is something God commanded the people of Israel. This is the only commandment of the 10 commandments that's not moral, but it's ceremonial. It has to do with how to worship God. And it's not repeated to the uh, Christians in the New Testament there's nothing in the New Testament or um, uh, that, that commands Christians to obey the Sabbath in the way that, uh, that, that he called Israel. We're not ob- uh, obligated by the law to observe the Sabbath. Um, but looking at a day set apart by God to focus on our dependence on the Lord, our love for him and a way to love others, is a, that's a practice that we, should, that we should all do. So again, if you look at Sunday as your day of rest as your day of love as your day of worship that's that is wonderful that's why god set it apart at at creation but don't equate that to submission to the law of god the ten commandments the mosaic covenant you're not a part of that does that make sense and if you don't observe the sabbath that you should be put to death again that was something for israel so do you understand how you can pull from this glean from it and observe a day of rest and at the same time understand you are not obligated and, and uh, underneath the law of God in the Ten Commandments. Um, Sabbath itself actually just means that. It's, it's, it's a transli- transliteration of the Hebrew word that just means ceasing or rest or inactivity. So to take aside a Sunday, to be like, I am not going to w- do work today. I'm going to focus this day on loving others, serving others, loving the Lord meditating on his word, spending time with my family and whatever. I mean, that, that's a, a, we should always be doing that. It just shows our dependence on God. Uh, rest shows our dependence upon him. Um, and, uh, and, and again, focusing on worshiping him, meditating on his word and his character and his name, loving one another, setting aside a day of devotion and selfless love. That's a, that's a wonderful thing. Um, but understanding that we're not uh, submitting to the the Sabbath, and we don't look at Sunday as the Christian Sabbath. Uh, it's not. You know, that's just a, a misunderstanding of the law. I think. Uh, I just looked at the time. We're going to move quick. <laughs> so those are the first four. Those are love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, strength, that kind of thing. The next six really focus on the one another's. So um, the fifth commandment is. Uh, and we call this the horizontal law of love. Like, how do we love one another? Uh, God's commanded Israel this way. First thing is that you honor your father and mother. That's an easy one. It's the, it's the one in the positive. Honor your father and mother, love your parents. All right, that's, that's an easy one. Honor father and mother as the Lord God has commanded you that your days may be prolonged. It may go well with you in the land which the Lord your God has given you. Uh, and again, same thing in Exodus uh, 20, verse 12, which I have up there. Uh, this is something that the Lord says throughout the, the, the law. We're going to see this repeated in Deuteronomy a few times. 
um, in Deuteronomy 4, 40, in Deuteronomy 6, 7 through 9. Uh, the role of the parents is to teach the children to keep his statutes so they will live long in the land there to train them up diligently, teach them about the Lord. And then the, the, the children are blessed by the faithfulness of the parents and are called to honor, to love, to submit to their parents. Again, in the New Testament, you see this repeated in Ephesians 6, 1 through 4, to obey your parents in the Lord, to honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, um, so that it may be well with you, that you may live long on the earth. Again, for the Jews, it was directly tied to their ability to stay in the land, to be in the land that God had given them. That was part of the blessings and curses of the Mosaic Covenant. Uh, for Christians, he's basically saying, you're still called to honor your father and mother. Then there's blessing in this life when we do that. Um, and then as, as parents, we're not to provoke our children to anger. We're to bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. That was the role of parents and the role of the, the children to the parents. That's why Jesus was so upset or, or angered at, the, again, the, the, the hypocrisy of the Pharisees who used God's law to dishonor their parents uh, in Matthew 15. And they says, you know, he's like, why do you transgress God's commandment for the sake of your traditions? Which is, again, what they did with the Sabbath that we just talked about in Matthew 12. And here they are again in Matthew 15. Uh, they're called to honor their father and mother, but they've made it to, if they give their things to God and their parents need it, that they're like, well, I can't take that from God and now give it to you. It's been holy and given to, to him. And in doing so, they're dishonoring, not loving, not taking care of their parents because they're so devoted to God. And God is like, that is the opposite of the whole thing. The whole point of that commandment is to love them is to show them compassion, is for them to see my love for you through your love for them. And he's, he's saying, you're doing the exact opposite. You're a hypocrite. You honor me with your lips, but your heart is so far from me. Um, and so in vain do they worship him. Again, so this is always God's desire. Even in the New Testament, we are always called to love one another, to honor our parents. And it does not mean just because your parents are honorable or faithful, and it's not honor your parents just because they're Christians. You honor your parents no matter what. In fact, your honoring of them shows the love of Christ in you, which could even be the very thing that God uses to draw them to him. So we are called to honor our father and our mother in the same way in the New Testament. But that's the fifth commandment. The sixth commandment is this. uh, Do not murder. They get super simple after that one. (laughs) Don't murder. And so... Now, but the positive that we're going to look at is this. We're calling this love your neighbor in selfless sacrifice. Love your neighbor in selfless sacrifice. The sixth commandment prohibits murder, which is premeditated killing. It does not prohibit uh, manslaughter, accidental killing. Uh, again, we already talked about the cities of refuge and, and the whole purpose of that. I mean, accidents happen, but premeditated anger driven murder is is all is is punishable by death um it doesn't prohibit capital punishment the 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 government uh putting to death people that deserve the death penalty because of their transgression or because of their sin um uh what what you get at this and this is what jesus does in matthew 5 it's the heart behind it again that's what god's always looking at with these laws with the ten commandments is is the the character of the person and the love that the person has towards one another. So the heart of murder is anger, revenge, bitterness, judgment. Some people are just too... uh, The the, the people that actually act on their anger and bitterness and do murder someone, either one just have a little bit less self-control or a little bit more brave than the cowards who just sit there and slander people and don't act on it. Does that make sense? So just because you haven't killed somebody 
doesn't mean you're not guilty of the very same thing that drove them to kill that person. Does that make sense? And that's what Jesus gets at in Matthew 5. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus gets behind a lot of these one another's, uh, behind a lot of these, the last six commandments, and tells the heart of it. And this is what's so cool about the Sermon on the Mount, is you got God, who gave us the law, who's now manifest on earth with us, and he is saying exactly what he meant by that law. And it gets way heavier. So again, it, it, not, not heavier, but way more clear, and, and it helps reveal that we're all guilty of all of this stuff all of the time, and we totally need Christ. That's what Jesus says in Matthew 5. You've heard the ancients were told, you shall not commit murder. I mean, we're, we, we're looking at what the ancients were told in Deuteronomy 6. He says, whoever commits murder is liable to the court. I say to you, so God's saying, here's what I meant by that. It's not just, if you haven't committed the act, you're good to go. He's saying this, everyone who's angry with his brother is guilty. Um, anyone who says you good for nothing is guilty enough to go into hell. And anyone, uh, or, or, oh, sorry, I missed one. Uh, let me just read it. Everyone who's angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. Whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. So he's saying that's, that's a big enough transgression to go before the Sanhedrin and to be condemned by, by the, 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 the court of Israel. And he says anybody who says you, you good for nothing to his brother is guilty. I'm sorry, whoever says you fool is guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. So in other words, he's trying to say it's not just the act of murder. It's you in anger, bitterness, slander, those sort of things. You have something in your heart against someone else. You're guilty of the same thing. And, and you deserve hell. So don't even think. It's like, oh, it's a transgression against the law. I have to go to the, the Sanhedrin. It's like, this is a big deal to God. And so he says, you can't worship him and be at odds with somebody else. If you're one to worship God and you realize there's something between you and a brother, you go to your brother. Again, you can't make someone else reconcile to you. You can't make someone else forgive you. You can't make someone else want to do the right thing. But you yourself, it's, it's what Romans said, right? We are to, as far as it depends on us, be at peace with all people. And you you, as a child of God, can't have in your heart bitterness, anger, wrath, judgment, whatever it is against your brother, and think that you can worship God. You and God are cool, but you and your brother aren't. Does that make sense? And that's what he's getting at here. So again, when it comes to us, when we look at the sixth commandment, it says, do not murder. Yeah, for sure. Don't go kill people. But even greater than that, what Christ says do not let anger, bitterness, resentment, those things dwell within you. Don't let them build up. In fact, you make those lists short. You know, those things are going to happen. You're going to be angry. When you're angry, do not sin, right? When you're angry, you make sure that you run back to the Lord. You go reconcile with your brother. Then you can come worship God with a right heart. So again, like I said, I think these last few are great because Jesus actually talks in the Sermon on the Mount about these things and helps us to see the heart behind it. But all of it is love your neighbor. The opposite of bitterness, anger, murder is sacrifice yourself selflessly to, for the blessing of your neighbor, right? That's the opposite of murder. You give up whatever it is, and you lay down your life for that person. The next one, the seventh commandment, do not commit adultery. Again, on the positive, we're going to call this love your neighbor in purity and in honor. Again, Exodus 20, the same thing. You should not commit adultery. Matthew 5, let's just jump right into it. This is what Jesus says. You've heard it was said you should not commit adultery. That is true. But, he says, I say to you, everyone who looks at a woman with lust in her, I mean, lust for her, has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So that's the whole idea. It's not just the act itself. It's the motivation, the thought, the heart behind it. 
And so he says, again, we all struggle with this. This is one of those things that's universal. Maybe all of us haven't committed adultery, but if you have looked lustfully at someone other than your spouse, well, welcome to the club. And he says, it would be better for you to tear your eye out to go into hell for that. It would be better for you to cut off part of your body than to go into hell because in, in your heart, you are practicing adultery. Um, he says, I say to you, everyone who divorces his wife except for a reason of unchastity makes her commit adultery. Whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So the, the whole point in all of this is not just the act of, but the heart behind, which is, again, the point of the whole Ten Commandments. Love your neighbor as yourself. Now we have the example of Christ. Love one another the way Christ loved you. And so to love your spouse uh, means not only that you do not commit adultery, but you love impurity and you love and you honor your spouse and you strive for purity. There's other prohibitions against other deviant sexual relationships. This is a prohibition against a sexual relationship or thoughts between a married person and another person. I mean, there's other things. Leviticus 18 through 12, 20 reveals all the, the abominations and deviation, incest, abortion, homosexuality, bestiality, all that. Just lewd, abominable, defiling stuff that doesn't even enter in the mind of God. So again, it's not that only adultery is bad. There's many deviant sexual sins that our, our uh, uh, what do you call it, culture, nation, is just, just neck deep in it, right? Uh, just evil. But again, as children of God, not only should we not even be named with that, it's not even on the table that that is an impossible lifestyle. But we're, we're pulling all the way over here on the other side. We need to love in absolute purity, absolute honor. And there should be nothing in our hearts that would uh, dishonor our wives or our husbands. Uh, the next uh, commandment is do not steal. Love your neighbor in thankfulness, generosity, and integrity. Again, uh, it's a simple commandment. Do not steal. Um, Exodus 22 is a whole chapter on property rights for the Israelite. Um, again, it's just the, the heart behind a lot of this. If, if you do steal, if you do take something, well, then you need to make restitution. You need to pay back double. Again, the heart behind is instead of uh, being discontent with what you have. Uh, actually, also the breach of trust in Exodus 22, 9. For every breach of trust, the once it goes before the court uh, the, the, and, and, and you're condemned of, of stealing or whatever it may be, you need to pay your neighbor double. The whole point is, is being content with what you have, being thankful for what you have, rejoicing in the Lord that somebody else has what you wish you had rather than you. And when there is that breach of trust or there is some amount of, of deceit or stealing that you make restitution, that you give back to your brother and you do that with double whatever it is you took. Um, and again, it's the whole heart behind it is what he says in Ephesians 4, 8 or 28. Uh, if you're born again, then you no longer take. He who steals must steal no longer. He must rather labor performing with his own hands what is good. So have something to share with the one who's in need. When we are stealing, deceiving, taking things for ourselves, our focus is on us and the material possessions or whatever it is that we can get for ourselves. Being discontent with what God has granted us. Uh, wanting, being envious or covetous of something that, that God has given someone else. And he's saying the heart of a transformed child of God is not only contentment, but it's generosity. It's integrity. It's, it's, you're, you're working twice as hard to be able to have so that you can give. That's the heart of love. And so, and again, we see that in the New Testament. Zacchaeus, right? I mean, he was a thief. When he is born again, what does he do? He goes out and pays, I think it's four times what he had stolen to everyone that he had stolen from. That's generosity. That's love. When the, the uh, soldiers 
and the uh, tax collectors came to John the Baptist and they say, what must we do? He says, don't take any more than what you are obligated by the state to take by, because of your occupation to the soldiers. Don't uh, extort others. Don't take things from others. Again, those who love the Lord, we don't take. We're, we're givers. We live in integrity. We're thankful for what God gives us, and we strive to bless others. Now, in some of the commentaries I read, I think trying to equate all of these things to loving others, it was saying he's just talking about kidnapping, man-stealing. I would just say that's part of it, but again, that's not the, the heart of it. That's just, that's a piece of it. Yeah, don't steal other people either. Uh, but <laughs> I think the heart of this goes into what he says in Exodus 20 and all that, that we are to be content, we are to be thankful, we are to be generous and to give. Real quick, the ninth commandment, do not slander. Uh, I'm calling this love your neighbor in truthfulness. And again, he says, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Um, Jesus talked about this in Matthew 15. Again, it's what comes out of the heart that defiles the man. Uh, It's out of the heart that comes evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications. I mean, again, everything we just talked about. It's what's in you. It comes out of your heart. Uh, But it's the same thing with thefts, false witness, slanders. These are the things. That's what Jesus is getting at in the Sermon on the Mount. What's in you, what's behind all this is what you actually are. It's not just the outward actions, it's you. It's not just what you did or said, it's, it's everything about the core of who you are. And so, again, uh, bringing false witness is basically saying something about someone else isn't true so they'll be punished for something they didn't do or something they are, are not. It's lying and deceiving and it's motivated by a self-interest or vengeance or something that serves you. Um, if, if it was successful, uh, then it would result in this other person being punished. It would result in the other person um, uh, uh, receiving a punishment for something that, that maybe they weren't or they didn't do. Um, and even if it di- wasn't successful, it's still going to bring implications on their life that aren't true that they're going to have to live with now uh, because you maligned their character. Now, hear this, by the way. Calling someone a liar that's a liar is not slander. Uh, calling out a false prophet for f- not preaching truth is not slander. That, that could be discernment and wisdom. It could even be guidance and counsel. It depends on, again, motives and why you're doing what you're doing. Now, again, if a person is a liar and they're a repentant liar and they're not lying anymore and they're practicing truthfulness and you just go around telling everybody they're a liar because you want more judgment or reproach brought upon them than because you think they deserve more, now you've entered into slander. Does that make sense? But don't think that slander is speaking truth and love or being discerning. Does that make sense? And a lot of times the bad guys accuse the good guys of slander because they're trying to hide the very thing that's being exposed by God. And that's not slander. Does that make sense? So understand that as well. But slander, again, is not love of your neighbor. Slander is a desire for your neighbor to receive some amount of punishment, judgment, or something. And, uh, and we're called to do the opposite. In fact, we're called to speak the truth in love and to grow in Christ-likeness, to lay aside falsehood, to lay aside lies, and to lay aside things like slander and to speak truth to one another. Finally, the last commandment uh, is do not covet. Um, or you love your neighbor in contentment and in respect. Again, you shall not cover your neighbor's uh, wife. You shall not desire your neighbor's house, his field, his male servant, female servant, ox, donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Um, and again, when you look at the New Testament, it's what's behind this is a heart that is content, a heart that is thankful. This is something we teach our children all the time. You be thankful when your sister gets what you wish you had. That's the very opposite of discontentment or covetousness, right? 
when we covet something, we want what, oh, they got that, I want that. I mean, it's, what's, it's what drives our culture, right? So right now, it's the stupid little Stanley Cups. I shouldn't have said the word stupid. <laughs> My kids would be like, don't say that word. But these Stanley Cups, right? Everybody's like, I gotta have a Stanley Cup. It's like only construction workers wanted those last year. You understand that? But now they're like the popular thing and everybody covets them. And it's just on my mind because I read that article about the, the crazy people at Target. Anyway, uh, but the whole point behind it is it reveals what's in your heart. It reveals what's in you. And again, this is what uh, Jesus says in Mark 7, deeds of coveting, all that stuff. These things come out from within us. They're what defiles us. Um, and so when there is something that we desire and we're not content with what God has given us or the timing he's given it to us and we covet something else, whether it's a, a neighbor's wife or it's their stuff or it's their house or whatever it may be, then it reveals us and, and what's, what's uh, uh, the, the sinfulness within us. Um, and again, I like how Ephesians 5 talks about all these things, immorality, impurity, greed, all these things shouldn't be named among you. Those are not proper for the saints. No filthiness, silly toss, coarse jesting. Those aren't filthy. Rather, we're called to give things. Uh, for this you know with certainty, that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater. So again, the, the, the fact that you're covetous, the fact that you're immoral, the fact that those things are part of your life reveals that Christ is not the foremost and that you would go all the way back to the first commandment. He says, does not have an inheritance of the kingdom of God. Um, and so we just need to remember that. And then the positive way to say it in the New Testament is Colossians 3. He says, if we've been chosen by God, holy and beloved, we put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience. We bear with one another. We forgive one another. We put on love. That's the perfect bond of unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, which indeed you are called in one body, and be thankful. So when we look at the Ten Commandments, like I said, all of these... All of these, look at them in the positive light. They all should reveal to us things about both God and who he is and our devotion to him and about how we are to love one another. And those things are repeated in the New Testament. There's this, the same calling. Other than the Sabbath, everything in the Ten Commandments is repeated and explained in better detail in the New Testament exactly what God meant when he revealed these things to Israel. It's about our heart and it's about us loving one another and loving God with all of our heart, mind, soul and strength. And so like he says in Matthew twenty two, thirty six to forty, uh, the, the greatest and foremost commandment is you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depends the whole law and prophets, and that's what Christ has revealed to us. So I know that's a lot, and I know we flew through it. But I hope that was a helpful explanation of the Ten Commandments. Helps you understand how to look at the law as a Christian. Um, and helps you understand that all that stuff was to reveal to the Israelites and even to us what's internally within us. God's desire for 100% absolute devotion to him and that we love one another the way that he's loved us. So let me pray for us. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for your word. Lord, I pray that this uh, was um, a profitable and, and fruitful. Lord, I pray that your word would just uh, hit our minds and our hearts and convict us of the the things that, that we are doing internally uh, that are not pleasing to you and the things that, um, that we're about that you're not about, Lord, that you would just uh, convict us, that you would humble us, you would help us to live in purity and integrity in love, uh, that we would be wholeheartedly devoted to you and that we would love one another the way that Jesus Christ has loved us and laid down his life for us. We pray this in your heavenly name. Amen. Thank you, guys.